show i'm eric i'm sean and we're the vertiguys we're checking out the dark side of dc we are here to recap and review vertigo comics starting with the big three sandman hellblazer preacher and today we are covering sandman the last part of the kindly ones right the climactic events of the series we are swiftly running out of big three here (laughs) that's true so this is parts 11 through 13. Weird to end a story arc on part 13. That weird to lock- get to part 13, if we're being honest. Well, yeah, but it's weird to end a storyline, a story arc on part 13. Could be bad luck. Do you think anything bad will happen? Oh, in the comic books? Yeah. No. Probably not. That'll be fine. Okay. Previously on Sandman... <gasps> Morpheus' son Orpheus asked his aunt Death to make him immune to dying so he could enter the underworld to rescue his wife. That failed, but he remained immortal and then got reduced just ahead. Destruction quit the Endless about 300 years ago so he wouldn't have to preside over nuclear weapons. Then in the present day, Delirium decided to find him and persuaded Morpheus to come along. Morpheus asked Orpheus for Destruction's location, but the price was he had to kill Orpheus, which he did, spilling family blood which made him fair prey for the kindly ones, the fates, an ancient force of lowercase d destruction that punishes those who break the rules. Apparently fulfilling the plan of desire, Dream's sister, brother, and longtime rival. Retired superhero Hippolyta Lyta Hall I'm unbelievably furious. had a baby... <laughs> That she carried. There's a very specific joke that I'm doing here. <laughs> For over a year. <laughs> Give it back. While she lived. <laughs> in. <laughs> the dreaming. There's a lot of previously. That's where the fun uh, yeah. comes from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Morpheus declared he was going to take that baby. More recently, the baby Daniel Hall was kidnapped by Loki and Puck, two trickster gods who wanted to get out of favors they owed Morpheus. They burned Daniel in a fireplace, destroying his humanity, but his soul remained and was rescued by Matthew the Raven and the revived Corinthian, a part-time nightmare, part-time serial killer whose thing is eyes. Before that, though, Lyda blamed Morpheus and went on a spirit journey to contact the kindly ones, allowing them to possess her and declare war on the dreaming. Morpheus tried to stop their assault by killing Lyda, but she'd been placed in a protective circle by Thessaly, an ancient Greek witch, and Morpheus's bitter ex-girlfriend. That's not a... Oxford list there, that that's who Thessaly is. Right. No Oxford comma. Meanwhile, Lucifer, former devil, runs a nightclub in Los Angeles, and Rose Walker, former Dream Vortex, is taking care of her friend Zelda, who's dying of AIDS. Rose was summoned to Witch Cross in England, to the house where warlock Roderick Burgess held Morpheus for 70 years, and where Burgess' son Alex is still imprisoned in the Nightmare of Eternal Waking to meet her grandmother. Turned out it was her grandfather, Desire, who gave back her heart. Rose had an affair with a cute young lawyer named Jack, but it turns out he was in a committed relationship, so that didn't end well. The Kindly Ones killed a bunch of our favorite dreams, like Griffin, Gilbert, Abel, and Merv Pumpkinhead. But the damage wasn't permanent as long as Morpheus stayed in the Dreaming. Meanwhile, in Fairy, Morpheus' fairy ex-maid, Noella, had been called home by her brother Cloricon, who happened to accidentally unleash his nemesis while wandering around the Dream Castle like an idiot. She's also been harangued lately by an annoying Boggart, who's apparently been charged with delivering a long, mean-spirited poem. Hoping to save Morpheus from the Kindly Ones by calling in a boon he'd promised her, Noella summoned Morpheus to Fairy, leaving the Dreaming at the mercy of the Kindly Ones. All right! And the dreaming is where we pick up here on the first page of this comic book. But first, I suppose we should talk about the cover. 
It looks like it has a rainbow and a trout, although not necessarily a rainbow trout. Mm. It's important to be precise about these things. And a music stand. Bone I also fish. don't know if that's a trout. I don't know what fish look like. <laughs> There's a music I'm pretty stand. Pretty sure that... it's not a shark. <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck cares? I think it was a halibut. <laughs> There's a music stand with a picture of a fish uh, next to what seems to be the nervous system of the fish diagrammed, and there's also a picture of what looks like several women with sunbeams coming down into their heads, and behind that is, we can kind of glimpse the edge of a rainbow. Maybe it's a pike. So as I said, we open in the Dreaming. This is Sandman number 67, The Kindly Ones, 11, written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Mark Hempel, inked by Richard Case, colors by Daniel Vazo, and the cover was by Dave McKeon. And edited by Karen Berger. Mm-hmm. So, the Corinthian has Daniel in hand and is making his way towards... What do you call that sort of main palace of the Dreaming? I guess it's just Morpheus's palace. I usually call it the Dream Castle. The Dream Castle. Well, that's where he's going, but there's an interloper approaches them. They run into someone unexpected. It is Kane. Kane says, things have changed. We get the impression that it's been some time, although actually we'll find out that's not true. Yeah, it hasn't been a huge amount of time. Well, because we're going to pick up the conversation between Morpheus and Nuala right where we left it mm, that's in a, a minute point. here. So it's actually been no time. But the dreaming is sure the worst for wear <laughs> in that 14 <laughs> seconds that he was gone. Yeah, the dreaming here looks kind of gray and foggy. It's, I mean, it probably looks that way in some places normally, but I think we're meant to get the impression that it's in bad shape. It's become a dark place. Kane says that they hurt his brother, but no one hurt him. That was my punishment, not being hurt. We know someone else whose punishment that was. Hmm. Orpheus. Oh, sure, yeah. Now, Kane, who recognizes Daniel from when they met in Parliament of Rooks, uh, he says the journey to the castle isn't safe, so they should travel together. It's not safe to go alone. Take me. Right. The Corinthian has a bone to pick with Dream, which we don't find out what that is. He's being taciturn right now. Oh, no, you're misunderstanding that. He has a bone to pick with Matthew the Raven. Oh, that makes, more, that makes so much more sense. And okay. we know exactly what it is. Yeah, because Matthew got pulled away from him when they were being buddy cops to find Daniel, because all of the ravens in mythology are gathered in the Dreaming for the coming carnage. Right. can't believe I left something out of that recap. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, Kane, apparently not enjoying the silence, tells a secret that the raven Noah sent from the Ark actually created the world. Shat it out. That's why it was there for the dove to find. And pissed the fresh water. Oh, yeah. They don't want to admit to it, of course. Who wants to be blamed for creating the world? Harsh. The Corinthian points out that secrets are usually Abel's gig. Kane agrees. Corinthian asks, And where is your brother? Which visibly upsets Kane. Yeah, he could zoom in on his eye looking unhappy. So Corinthian keeps hassling him to tell him where Morpheus is. Kane finally snaps, I don't know where his nibs is. I do have certain opinions of my own about the advisability or otherwise of just bopping off on little jaunts while insane primeval forces destroy your kingdom and its luckless inhabitants, but then that's the kind of fellow I am. Opinionated. <laughs> yeah, so he's not happy with Morpheus for having left. They get to the palace, Wyvern and Hippogriff uh, invite them inside, where they'll be a little safer. Yeah, rooms were going to be created for them, but haven't been. Right. And Hippogriff mentions that there's a fourth one that we haven't seen yet. Kane has Goldie, Abel's cute little gargoyle, in his pocket. 
Yeah, this is a really cute kind of humanizing moment for Kane. Mm-hmm. We get to see Kane in, in kind of wooby mode, all sad because his brother is dead. Right, yeah, exactly. He has this, like, irresistible compulsion to kill Abel because that's the kind of character he is. Because he's a character in a story and that's his role in the story. Right, but he also deeply cares for his brother and is really upset at the loss. Also, no one's allowed to kill his brother but him. Yeah, he's, he's possessive about it. Plus, he's kind of lost his job now because you can't murder a guy who's already dead. Right. Meanwhile, in Fairy, as I said, we, well, we get our title, and then, as I said, we pick up the conversation between Morpheus and Nuala right where we left it at the end of last issue. Yes, Nuala thought she was helping. I did not realize that I could harm you by taking you from the dreaming. I thought I was helping you. Yeah, hold on to that thought. Morpheus explains what's up with the kindly ones, that even he is subject to ancient rules. And he did kill his son. Twice, he says. Once long ago, when I would not help him, and once more recently, when I did. I killed my son. It was what he wanted, what he craved. In my pride, I abandoned him for several thousand years, and then, at the last, I killed him. You, you want them to punish you, don't you? You want to be punished for Orpheus's death. Morpheus just has a guilty, despairing look, his face mostly cast in shadow at Noala's suggestion. Yeah, and he tries to explain to her that despite what he told Ishtar, his years of imprisonment actually did change him. Right, in fact, he, he tells Noala that he thinks he lied when he told Ishtar he hadn't changed. I did not mean to harm you. I know that, Noala. But as has recently been pointed out to me, intent and outcome are rarely coincident. He is quoting dialogue from his conversation with Thessaly back in issue 65. Nuala suggests that he'll be safe here at least for a while, and when the kindly ones come looking for him, they can always run somewhere else. They can stay together. But he looks at her sternly. Right, he has to obey the rules. I shall return to my realm, and I shall do what I have to do. I still owe you a boon, lady. Did you have a particular boon in mind when you summoned me here? I wanted you to stay. I... I wanted you to love me. There's a moment of silence between them. She looks up at him, sort of hopefully, and then back down. Yeah, he sort of turns entirely into shadow in the second panel of his reaction there. And do you think that love is a gift? Like a bauble or a trinket? Something I can reach into a pouch and present to you? I gave all my love to you, years ago. Did you? I did not realize. On reflection, while I cannot give you the thing itself, I could give you a dream of my love. And Nuala says, I already have that, my lord. And she kisses him on the cheek, and he has been drawing a little door in the air so that he can leave, and he steps towards it. I really like this silent moment between them, this sort of moment of him considering. You get the sense just for a moment here that he he could go with her, he could love her, but that's something he can't bring himself to do. That's He won't abandon his responsibilities. Meanwhile, Rose, it seems, is back in the States. Well, I guess the last time we saw her, she was on the plane, right? So where else would she be but back in the States? Right. And her run of bad luck is continuing. Yeah, we open on her shocked face as she has just been told that Zelda died while she was in England. She died in the wee hours of Sunday morning, when uh, Rose was singing Sunday Morning by the Velvet Underground. The message on your machine said you were in England, Miss Walker. It's hospice policy not to leave messages on machines. Yeah, this woman asks Rose to take on the funeral arrangements and to pay for Zelda's hospice stay. Rose walks away, her uh, flowers and chocolates in hand, to go to accounts and settle things. 
And the woman calls after her. Miss Walker! Oh, Miss Walker, don't forget we take MasterCard and Visa. This woman is like a seriously exaggerated character design, even by the standards of this arc. She looks like a Pink Floyd's The Wall version of a hospital administrator. <laughs> We're sort of seeing her as what she represents to Rose. Right. More than as a as a person. This is like the opposite of a sort of Claremontian moment where you get a bunch of <laughs> unnecessary detail on a, on a minor character. Here, the minor character doesn't exist at all. Right. She is a heartless functionary. Right. As Rose pays the bill and takes ownership of Zelda's remaining effects, including the spider collection, the spider women had the biggest collection on the eastern seaboard, she realizes she'd been hoping for a miracle. Rose narrates, Death means I sign an indemnifying waiver twice by the little crosses. No miracles. And then I put Zelda's death on my visa card, and that makes it final. The funeral will be the day after tomorrow. I'll need to meet the people from the funeral home this afternoon and sign another visa slip. And all the weird shit tumbles into perspective. It doesn't matter, and it isn't real. No miracles, no magic, no dreams. Just pain and death and visa slips. That's one of the most memorable lines to me. And that's really, that sums up Rose, both the attitude that she acquired at the end of Doll's House and the attitude that she's returning to here. That weird shit happens, but you have to live your life anyway. Well, you know, she said that she'd been expecting a miracle. So yeah. she kind of wandered away from that philosophy and had a and had a harsh reminder of it, you know? Yeah. She was in the end she was still expecting magic. Yeah. Her experience in England was she sort of she had said that she had lost her heart, that she had had difficulty caring about things the last several years, and she sort of experienced caring again when she had this affair with Jack and then was disappointed. So you care, you reach out to people, and you will get hurt, but that's... The human condition? The human condition. I was going to say cost of doing business. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. But yeah, Rose finds all the weird shit in her life trivial next to the reality of Zelda's death. On her way out of the hospice center, Rose runs across the same crazy homeless man. Right, the nursery rhyme man. Hey, you, mister. Do you like grapes and chocolates and flowers? Uh, sure, pretty lady. Grapes and flowers and chocolates. Who doesn't? And we see, by the fact that her dog talks to him, that Delirium's dog is here keeping the old man company and helping him eat chocolate. Yeah. You'll never be able to eat all those chocolates on your own, you know. I don't think dogs are supposed to eat chocolate. No, it's bad for them. But he doesn't seem to care. In the throne room, Lucian, Cain, Corinthian, Daniel, and Goldie are gathered. Yeah, Daniel is sort of playing with Goldie. It's really cute. Yeah. Kane reminds the others that the last time Morpheus went missing, he was gone for decades. That's not entirely fair. He's actually left the Dreaming a bunch of times since the beginning of the series. Right. Yeah, it wasn't the last time he left. But within living memory, <laughs> he was gone from the Dreaming for 60 years. The Corinthian, meanwhile, is having a memory from his past life. The strange gray days when Morpheus was gone that stretched into years, and then the day that he realized he could just walk into the waking world and do whatever he wanted. Daniel falls on Goldie with a sort of splat, not sound effect, but the visual effect looks like Goldie is splatting. Oh god, I hope they just kill off Goldie by having no, his Goldie's, father fall on him. Goldie's fine on the next page. Oh good, good, him. okay. <laughs> there he is. He looks like he's got a little bump on his head. I remember those days. We waited for him while the castle fell apart about our ears. While the words fled from my books and scurried off down the corridors in twos and threes, 
or faded into oblivion and obscurity. Those of the staff who took their power directly from our lord, the gatekeepers and such like, became insubstantial or ceased to exist entirely. Corinthian wonders if there's anything here for Daniel to play with, but this is the Dream King's palace. Everything here is dangerous. Cain gives him a glass orb anyway. Yeah, and he's sort of bathed in, like, radiance for a moment. Maybe we should find something else for him to play with. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. He sort of turns into a blue outline against a white backdrop here. It's a weird moment. Also, I have to call this out. You know who I miss most? Mr. Salt of the Earth Mervyn Bloody Pumpkinhead. Never thought I'd miss his idiot homilies. Oh, man. Lucian really, uh, really liked Merv, and now he's gone. I am crying. Meanwhile, in Destiny's garden, a ton of different destinies are wandering around. Yeah, and I'm interpreting this as, as events are happening, as possibilities are turning into the past, the conflicting destinies are either fusing into one another or just disappearing. Destiny actually narrates that both are happening at once. This will be felt across worlds and days as a reality storm. And, as it plays its course, conflicting realities will fall and spin and shatter across time and existence. Right, so that explains the reality storm. It retroactively happened because of the events that are about to happen. We thought it was Orpheus's funeral procession at the time, right? That's certainly a reading of it. But maybe it's someone else's. One of the Destinies asks Destiny which is the true Destiny, and Destiny sees those words written in his book. And then he reads on. But what of the dreaming, and the lord of that realm? His conveyance began as a carriage, pulled by two black horses. And then we turn the page, and that's what we see. Before we go too much farther, though, I want to point out that the Destiny asking the other Destiny, Am I the true Destiny? Are you? Sort of calls back to Lyda asking her reflection, which of us is the real one. Oh yeah, that's a good point. And her reflection said, does it matter? So the carriage rides through the night sky, and then it becomes a train through the desert, and then it leaves the lands of nightmare for the heart of the dreaming. And sketched behind the panels on this page, we can see a poem. All around me darkness gathers, fading as the sun that shone. We must speak of other matters. You can be me when I'm gone. The train arrives, and Morpheus steps out, looking dapper as fuck. Gentlemen, I have returned. I am afraid I must apologize for the delay. I like the bit here where the palace has become a train station. Right, because he's arriving by train. It becomes a terminus. That's cool. And he's got an amazing outfit here, this double-breasted black jacket with his cloak over it and this long trailing scarf. Yeah, don't forget he's wearing thigh-high boots as well. That too. Why? Because he fucking can. Yeah, it's just like... <laughs> Well, he is the concept of storytelling, so if he's going to have a cool arrival moment, it's going to look cool as hell. <laughs> right. Kane immediately wants to talk about his dead brother. Damn it, he says he has a contract. My lord, I am the murderer here. I have a contract. My poor brother had a contract. I was the first murderer. I have certain rights and privileges. We must talk. Kane, I have no interest in discussing this matter at this time. Later then, sire, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Morpheus warmly greets baby Daniel. Young man, a pleasure to finally meet you after all this time. And then, the ladies. Madame, ladies, good afternoon. They're here, Lucian says. They are indeed. Yes, and Morpheus asks them to leave. Yeah, he stands up to them and says they've just gotta go, but they whip him with the scorpion flail, drawing blood. Yeah, leaving a slash across his cheekbone. He gives them a glare, but... Our POV focuses on Daniel now. 
as somebody within the Kindly Ones realizes that Daniel is here and he's not dead. He is no longer alive, responds another one of the Kindly Ones. Right, now we find ourselves sort of inside the Kindly Ones in this, uh, in this sort of flaming hellscape where Lyda is dressed up in battle armor as are the Maiden Mother and Crone. One of the uh, components of one of the battle armors is uh, a skeleton hand bra. Yeah, both Maiden and Crone are wearing that, which presents a very different impression between the two of them. Well, they're also in the same pose, so they're actually the same person at the same time. Right, they are the same entity. They are shifting between uh, these forms, as they are wont to do. So Light is having second thoughts. They don't have to kill Morpheus. They should just rescue Daniel. I told you once, I won't tell you again. We don't rescue. We revenge. Yeah, they're here to hurt Morpheus for killing his son, and they mention they hated his son. They're just doing this out of duty. They didn't have any particular love for Orpheus. In fact, they hated him for making them cry with his beautiful songs. Meanwhile, in Hell Hell... Yeah, Remiel, who is one of the angels who's been left in charge of Hell, hasn't heard from the Silver City and he's losing his faith. Meanwhile, at Lux, a drunken patron steals the mask off of the one waitress's face. Yes, the beautiful silent waitress. Revealing her to be Mazakin. And going insane in the process. Yeah, now she's been wearing a mask and keeping silent because half of her face is sort of rotted. Right. I don't think we knew that it was Mazikeen, did we? Before we this? sort of could have guessed because we knew that Lucifer ran the club and she had half of her face hidden. Okay, we could have guessed, but this is the actual reveal. Yeah. That she's Mazikeen, the demon with the kind of two-face deal except worse. Yeah. And so this guy, as he sees her face, loses one after the other his drink, his lunch, and his sanity. Meanwhile, we're told that Larissa is unable to sleep. Larissa is apparently the name we're now calling Thessaly. I don't know when that happened. Yeah, she has a moment of suddenly finding herself missing Morpheus. The sudden burst of affection and desire discomforts her. She puts it from her. The circle is secure. The woman is safe. That would be Lyda, who is staying in a magical circle under her protection. Right. Morpheus is preparing. Lucian comes in and asks if he's going to keep the scar. And Morpheus recalls that Alianora prophesied he'd receive his scars, like the one he left on her cheek, and the one he left in her heart. What are you going to do now, Lord? Do? I'm going to do whatever I can do. I will do what I must. I like, once again, he's like, do? (laughs) (laughs) He never misses an opportunity to say that. We're coming up on the uh, low teens of chapters of the story arc. Maybe I should do something now. (laughs) First, he says he needs to have words with Daniel before he confronts the ladies. He's also going to need the Emerald Dreamstone. So I was curious about this, and we can talk about it more later, because we do talk about the Emerald Dreamstone more later, but is it the last one that's left? I think he still has the ruby. No, I'm sorry, the ruby exploded. The ruby was destroyed in his battle with Dr. Destiny. That's right. (laughs) My favorite JLA villain, Dr. Destiny. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh... I believe that he had given one to Alianora, so did he pick that one up at the end of Game of You? That I don't remember. He recalls Nuala's invitation to flee. Rules and responsibilities. These are the ties that bind us. We do what we do because of who we are. If we did otherwise, we would not be ourselves. As he puts on his helmet for war, I will do what I have to do, and I will do what I must. The cover of The Kindly Ones Part 12 is a sort of mask with a wax tear dripping from one eye. 
Yeah, it's interesting. The sort of stone face with these holes full of liquid wax with a tear dripping down and sort of a robot hand or an artist's model hand in front of the face covering the mouth as if in surprise. Sandman 68, The Kindly Ones 12, is written by Neil Gaiman, of course, drawn by Mark Hempel and Richard Case, with inks by Richard Case and colors by Daniel Vazzo. And edited by Karen Berger. Yes. So the credits are exactly the same, except for the fact that Richard Case is pencils on some of these pages. Yes. Unlike in the last issue. Okay, Matthew, the raven, finds Morpheus in a high tower in the Dream Castle. Daniel is playing nearby. Still here, then. So what's new? Anything much happened while I was gone? Morpheus says he's decided to confront the Kindly Ones, and he has just had his important conversation with Daniel. Also, he adds, the Corinthian has sworn to kill Matthew for deserting him on their mission. I'm honestly kind of sorry I asked. Now, something has been bugging Matthew for the entire story arc, and he takes this opportunity to ask Morpheus about it. Can he hurt me, the Corinthian? Can one dream hurt another? Could he kill me? Kill you? Certainly. Not permanently, but for a while. There's a moment of silence between them, and then Matthew asks, Penny for your thoughts. You have no pennies, Matthew. And then he starts talking more about the emerald. It was one of twelve dream stones. The greatest of them was the ruby, but there were many others. Right, it says he gave the rose quartz to poor Alianor, presumably to control her optic blasts. <laughs> ruby quartz. Yeah, I know. You make do with what you got. <laughs> Her optic blasts aren't as strong as... Yeah, well, that's how it works. Okay, so he does... Morpheus here says that some of them have been scattered, some of them have been destroyed. That at least strongly implies that the emerald is the only one he has in hand now. And it's the least of them. It was an eagle stone that he created for the great birds. But they returned it after using it for some time. Yeah, eagle stones also figure into the plot of American, American Gods. Gods. He... Holds up the jewel and he muses on facets. Each catches the light in its own way. It would be possible, he says, to mistake a facet for the whole jewel. He's talking about the jewel, but he's talking about the incarnations of the Endless. Yes, he is but a facet of a much larger entity. And he is going to face the kindly ones, who are similarly just a facet of a much larger entity. Right, one of the many faces of the Hecate. Or three of the many faces of the Hecate. So he's going to face the kindly ones. I will do what I need to do to make them leave the dreaming, and to cease to trouble its inhabitants. I don't get this shit. I really don't. I mean, your dream of the Endless. One of the seven head honchos who've controlled the whole show from the beginning of time. And you're scared of some kind of... I don't know, they aren't even goddesses. That nobody even remembers anymore. I mean, why don't you wave your hand and make them go poof? Because there are rules, and because they are part of something far huger and older than simple goddesses, and bound and empowered by rules, as I am. And as they have this conversation, Morpheus leans over and hands the emerald to Daniel. And the kid? We have spoken. Huh? He can't talk. Don't get me wrong, he's a good kid, I like him, but he's not exactly a conversationalist yet. So at this point, Morpheus says goodbye to Matthew and tries to teleport him away. But it doesn't work. Matthew? I sent you away. Not if I don't want to go. It didn't work the last time, remember? Sometimes I think it's all I got left. Not going. I don't remember that. When he was unable to teleport Matthew away? Yeah, did that happen before? Yeah, I don't remember specifically where it was. I remember him teleporting Matthew to Eve's cave when he was despondent over Thessaly ages ago. Maybe he tried to send Matthew back when he got here from the Corinthians mission and he couldn't. Because ravens are in the dreaming right now. Ah. 
Now Matthew asks, Tell me the truth, boss. Do you honestly expect to come back from this? No, not really. If I came with you, would I come back? I doubt it. That's what I thought. A penny for your thoughts, Matthew, and he conjures a penny. Smartass. What am I going to do with a penny? I was thinking about duty and second chances. Well, so what are we waiting for? Let's go knock him dead. So that's a really nice moment for Matthew, because he's decided that even though he almost certainly can't change the outcome of this confrontation, and even though he's been worried about what happens when he dies in the dreaming, the entire story arc, he's going to go. Yeah, and I mean, this sort of completes a character arc that began back when he was a human. You know, he was a shitty husband. Yes. He, through utter delinquency, allowed himself to be possessed by the deceased soul of his wife's evil uncle. Yeah. And then died. <laughs> yeah. And specifically, he made a deal to keep himself alive after his dr drunk driving accident. He was unable to accept his death there, and it had dire consequences. Right. That's a story arc, of course, that we have not covered yet. But it happens on the pages of Swamp Thing. Take our word on it. Or, or don't. Or you don't have to take my word on it. Take my word for it. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> oh, so much Just, wisdom. <laughs> it is in a book, so go take a look. Right. Outside Lux, Delirium is walking along, following the Borgal Rantipole, this goblin who has been given her as a guide, except she has turned him into a flying fish that she is walking on a leash. To be inconspicuous. <laughs> I love this. And there's Mazikeen. Mazikeen, having been revealed, no longer feels the need to keep silent, but also can't really talk. I guess I figured that was because she knows she's dealing with delirium, not just a person who wandered in. Oh, I thought it was because someone stole her mask, and she wasn't in the mood to... She's wearing it again here. Well, that's true, but she's not keeping silent anymore. Mazikeen tells her to go away. Delirium loses her temper with being dismissed. I will turn you into a demon half-faced waitress nightclub lady with a crush on her boss, and I'll make it so you've been that from the beginning of time to now, and you'll never, ever know if you were anything else. And it will itch inside your head, worse than little bugs is. So, holy shit. Is that how we got Mazakine? Or not? Mazakine, let her come through. Mazakine poorly enunciates, telling her to go on in, he deserves you. If he deserves me, he must have been very, very good indeed. Dream and Matthew are traveling in the Dreaming. Matthew points out that both Morpheus and the Kindly Ones are omnipresent in the Dreaming, so why are they traveling? Rules, right? It figures. Okay, now this is complicated, but it will become clear why we're following this in a moment. A woman named Vixen is being interviewed on a daytime talk show. It's worth pointing out that this is not the Vixen who was a member of the Justice League of America. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, we do not see her take on the powers of any animal during the course of this conversation. Right. She's taking a lot of pot shots in general, and she calls herself a biological weapon in the war between the sexes. We learn that she has released a CD, and she's performing a one-woman show at a comedy club. Anyway, Vixen goes back to her dressing room and is surprised to find Rose Walker. How the hell did you get in here? Hundred dollar bills, Hal. You give them to people, they let you wander around backstage. I told them I was an old friend and I wanted to surprise you. And of course, I am an old friend, and I did want to surprise you. Okay, so Vixen is Hal, her former drag queen landlord. Right. So Rose came to inform Hal that Zelda is dead, and basically to 
implore him to come to the funeral. Right, she expects to be the only one there. So, exeunt the Spider-Women, stage left. Look on their works, ye mighty, and clean yours with bleach. Hell is referencing Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley, and also being an insensitive asshole. Not only being selfish in the face of a friend's death, but not really having a great idea how you catch AIDS. Yeah, it's a not particularly clever joke in poor taste. Right. Of course, Neil Gaiman knew that when he wrote it, which is why he put it in the mouth of a character who's a bit of an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Rose calls him out on being insensitive. And this is where she invites him to the funeral. He says, Sorry, sweetheart, I don't do funerals. Life, as they say, is too short. And I can't wear black. I'm an autumn. Asshole, Hal. The word you're looking for is asshole. Back in the dreaming, Morpheus alights on a narrow, vertical spire of rock. This is the place. Matthew says it was good being Dream's raven. It was good being his friend. And then Morpheus calls out to the ladies. Ladies, I am here. It is time to settle this matter for good. At Lux, Lucifer asks Delirium if she has any requests. Yes, I want my doggy back, and I want my brother all right. I don't want him hurt or anything. That's my request, please. Lucifer's reaction to this is interesting. After he plays the piano for a beat, he says, I told him, you know. It was at the end of my reign. I closed the final door to hell, and I told him, I told him that I owed him much for having given me the impetus to go. I told him that there was always freedom, even the ultimate freedom, the freedom to leave. You don't have to stay anywhere forever. You know, I swore to destroy him, young brother. Oh, he embarrassed me. He said something he thought was clever. It's not that important. And now? Now I feel almost sorry for him. Go and find your dog, child. Go and find your dog. It is too late to help your brother. Where are they? They will be here soon, Matthew. You know, you never answered my question. I wanted to know what happened to your other ravens before me in the end. Yeah, so Morpheus finally answers the question. Some, he says, he sent on into death, and even he's not answering what happens after that. One, he returned to human form. Two, stayed in the dreaming and other roles. One of those, he reveals, was Lucian, the very first raven. No shit, but he said he didn't remember his early days. And what about me? We are here, dream lord. That's the voice of the kindly ones. We now go to Fairy, where the little imp has finally caught up with Nuala and is going to make her listen to bad poetry, (laughs) whether she likes it or not. Yeah, she's crying in her bedroom when this... And she won't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's crying in her bedroom when this boggart comes in and finishes the poem. A couple of lines of it seem particularly relevant. Oh, which ones are those? And if you do not choose to see that what we are, we choose to be. And then he finishes again with, be sure your sins will find you out. He asks what she thinks, and she says... It's obvious that it's Clericon, and he should stop being a dick. She also says she doesn't care for his poetry, so... Right. She agrees that it was bad poetry. So he turns back into himself. He notes that she's crying, sort of wipes up her tear, tries to comfort her a little bit. Lord Shaper is in dire need, and he doesn't love me. Would it be better if he was in dire need and did love you? So she says she's leaving, and she asks... Remember that she is stuck in a glamour that he put on her so that she wouldn't be banished for showing her true form in court. Right, and it's been established that basically a a fairy spell can only be broken by the fairy that cast it. So she asked him to give her true form back before she sets off on her journey. As you said in your silly poem, what we are we choose to be. I choose to leave. Brother, will you give me back my face? Meanwhile, back in dreaming. Yeah, Morpheus is treating with the kindly ones. 
They refuse to leave. He can't fight them because they're insubstantial, so they will just keep wrecking the dreaming. Your son's blood is on your hands. So, you will not be satisfied with anything less than? What do you think? Less than what? What are they asking? Hush, Matthew, hush. That is none of your concern. Meanwhile, back in the palace, little Daniel is playing with the emerald, and death arrives. Keep away from him, the Corinthian warns her. Right, he swears to fight her if she comes for Daniel, even though he knows that he would lose and be destroyed. I'm not here for either of you. Where's my brother? Our lord is with the ladies, madam. Now Death and Lucian chat about books for a little while. It's cute. This is maybe the source of the, the memorable Lucian line. She would think on it four hours before she went to sleep at night, but she never wrote more than a couple of paragraphs. Morpheus, still with the kindly ones, speechifies a little bit. Yeah, he tries to warn them against the course of action that they've decided to take, but they cannot be dissuaded. Then he turns and says that he has a task for Matthew. We make choices. No one else can live our lives for us. And we must confront and accept the consequences of our actions. Boss! What are you? Are you crazy, boss? No, Matthew, but I appreciate your concern, and I have a task for you. Uh-uh, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here with you. This is the last thing I will ask of you, Matthew. Will you deny it to me? Uh, what do you need? So he takes off his helmet and his bag of sand and asks Matthew to carry them back to the castle. And he will find death there. Send her here. Yeah, he makes them small so that Matthew can carry them. Take them. Please. I'm sorry? Take them, please. I apologize. Will you take them, please? Okay, sure, no problem. I don't get to come back? I'm afraid not. Well, I'll see you then. When you come back to the castle, I'll wait for you there. Goodbye, Matthew. Oh, that's a... that's a moment. So Matthew at this point basically knows that he's leaving Morpheus to his death, but Morpheus has given him this out by sending him on this errand. And I like, too, the moment where Matthew asks Morpheus to ask him instead of commanding him. A yeah. moment of acknowledgement that they're friends. Right. So Matthew lights on the throne, deposits the helmet and the bag of sand there, and addresses death. He said you'd be here. He wants you to go to him. So on the cover of Sandman 69, the kindly ones, no bloody A, B, C, or D. This is a Dave McKeon cover, and the art is entirely by Mark Campbell this time. We have a stone face of Morpheus. A scroll is wrapped around his wrist and feeding into his brow. There's a flash of lightning, and death materializes on the precipice next to Morpheus. Oh, did you read that as part of her appearance? I just thought the dreaming is like that now. It's just full of dramatic thunderclaps. It is worth noting that he continues lightninging even after she shows up. So maybe her appearance has nothing to do with that. What are you doing? She says. Waiting for you. This is the same greeting that Death used when we first met her in Sandman number 8. She says she's been worried about him, and he says that the last time they had this conversation, she threw a loaf of bread at him. He conjures one and hands it to her. Hmm. You want to make some pigeons? If that is what you wish. And indeed, we see several pigeons fly down and alight on the rock spire. I was expecting you to throw it at me, to tell me off, to shout at me. It's too late for that, my brother. It's much too late for that. I am tired, my sister. I am very tired. Now we smash cut to, hey, Matthew! Huh? <laughs> Shit! Yes, the Corinthian has just hurled his Swiss army knife in the direction of Matthew. He takes off, 
and the knife hits some kind of freaky spider that was behind him. Yeah, a big spidery thing that was sneaking up. Stay out of reach of its mouth. I think we can assume it's poisonous. Yeah, Lucian arrives and announces that it's one of the beings that Morpheus had imprisoned in the Dreaming. The ladies have just freed them all. As they threatened to do. So, you gonna try and kill me now? I ought to, but hell, bird, life's too short. So, that's resolved. Comes down to it, Corinthian saves Matthew's life instead of killing him. He's not an entirely bad guy. Not yet. Lucian does mention that not all the prisoners are free. The ones in the chest are still safe, so we don't have to worry about Azazel getting loose. Yeah, he also mentions that he killed a few. <laughs> yeah, just kind of casually. Just just this librarian in his fancy suit just casually mentions, yeah, I had to kill a few demigods. He's got a little bit of still a little ripping on his sleeves. <laughs> Do I have your permission to use the shotguns? <laughs> <laughs> but the shotgun in the dreaming would be like the idea of a shotgun. So it can kill anything that's afraid of a shotgun. It'd probably be more like a blunderbuss. <laughs> yeah. Lucian asks where Morpheus is, and looking guilty, Matthew says that he's out on the edge of Nightmare, and he's holding on to the emblems of office until Morpheus gets back. There's but three furies found in spacious hell, but in a great man's breast three thousand dwell, Lucian says, reciting from The White Devil by John Webster, which he was reading at the beginning of the story arc. You are a strange one, my brother says Death, back at the precipice. I don't know anyone who can be so completely straightforward and so utterly devious at the same time. Devious? Mm, wrong word, maybe. But the stuff you do, where you do it, and you won't even admit to it yourself it's what you're doing. What would you call it? He says he doesn't know what she's talking about, but she says, of course you do. She goes on to say, the only reason you've got yourself into this mess is because this is where you wanted to be. I just want to know why. Yeah, so this is... An important moment, an important reveal. Death interprets Morpheus as being at the center of all the events of this story arc, as having manipulated events, hidden perhaps even from himself, to bring about this confrontation. But he uh, won't admit it. Yeah, Odin was kind of wondering about this a couple of issues ago, too. He wondered if Morpheus was a deer in the headlights or a spider at the center of his web. Maybe right. both. He's sort of Brad Pitt and Edward Norton. Right, yes. <laughs> he's laid an elaborate trap for himself, and now he's falling into it. I had imagined that I would be able to keep events here in check. I intended to play a waiting game in which, ultimately, no harm was done. But I was forced to leave the Dreaming. Death snaps that he's not blaming Nuala for this. You didn't have to do anything. You are right, of course. It has nothing to do with Nuala. It has everything to do with me. Right. Ever since he killed Orpheus, he says, the freedom of the Dreaming has felt like a cage. He's sort of comparing his immortal existence, his responsibilities as Dream, to his imprisonment in Roderick Burgess's crystal cell. Ever since he escaped from his imprisonment, he still feels caged up. Death points out that destruction just left. He could do that, but that is not in Morpheus's nature. No, I could not. No, you couldn't, could you? The roots of the Dreaming are quaking. Lyda... In Thessaly's apartment, and in the wasteland where she searched for the Hecate, and in the Fury's armor, screams. Delirium looks at the end of her leash and finds the Borgal Rantipola's gone. Poor motherfucker, he tried so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Nuala on horseback is racing towards the exit of Ferry. Yeah, this portal between a pair of standing stones on a hill. And she has her natural face now, not her glamour. Right. Loki in his prison... Writhing in his cage of torment. 
um, <laughs> realizes that for all his manipulations, he too was manipulated. Perhaps the sound he makes is laughter. And a hundred ravens watch expectantly. Did you feel that, Dream King? We are ripping your world apart. I felt it. What will you do to stop us? What can you do? Death has had quite enough of this. She says, enough, I have had quite enough of this. We are merely performing our function, lady. Leave us alone. This is between me and my brother. And these gray clouds that have suffused the dreaming suddenly clear up, revealing blue sky. Yeah, the clouds were also in the shape of the Furies. Yeah. There, Death says. And now, uh, oh man, a hell of a two pages this is. Death asks Morpheus, what are we going to do? What else can we do? I have made all the preparations necessary. You've been making them for ages. You just didn't let yourself know that's what you were doing. If you say so. Dream, give me your hand. And we have a a beautiful close-up on Death's face. And then, in a series of tall, narrow panels, their fingers touch, and a bright light bursts forth. The light grows to encompass the whole spire, to fill the whole sky. And that... So that central panel where their fingers touch, that looks like it's probably inspired by Michelangelo, right? Yeah, that makes sense. We can post a picture of the relevant Michelangelo. Turning the page, there's a burst of flame and a puff of smoke atop the spire, and then nothing but darkness. Yeah, just darkness and barren rocks. Back in Ferry, Nuala is intercepted at the gate by Titania. She's pretty mad. You're basically not allowed to not want to hang out with Titania. Is that Clericon on the other side? And there's a little imp in between them, too. Yeah, there's three of them on horses here, but the other guy doesn't have any relevance in the story. He's just there. Oh, okay. He's just an aide of some kind. Yeah. So Titania basically has no patience for those who would reject her guardianship, she says. I also wonder if there's an element of jealousy here, if she's jealous of Noella going back to be with Morpheus. Remember, Titania had a crush on Morpheus and kind of basically hoped Noella would spy on him while she was in his realm and find out that he had a crush on her, too. Which he didn't. Right. So they're even. Even Stephen. Right. He doesn't have a crush on either of these ladies. Oh. Noala says basically kill me or don't. I'm not staying. Yeah, and then there's a lightning bolt and Titania winces in pain. It was true then, Clericon. You're foretelling. So that is Clericon. Oh, right. Lady, I had hoped it would not be so. I looked back through every appearance of Clericon, and as far as I can tell, we have not actually seen this prophecy. But what do you think she means by the foretelling? Do you think that that crack of lightning and the foretelling being true means they've realized here in Fairy that Morpheus is dead? Yeah, I think so. I think his poem must have somehow meant that that was going to happen. Right. I don't see how. And I kind of interpret the poem as maybe trying to console Nuala a little bit. He's saying, listen, you have to accept that people do what makes them who they are, that Morpheus isn't going to compromise on this. Right. I thought, you can't make people be what you want them to be. Yeah, you know, Morpheus didn't love Nuala. That's his own choice. Morpheus has been destroyed. That's also his own choice. Right. And Titania sends Nuala away, and she rides between the stones and disappears. Meanwhile, in the real world, or as close as we get to it, Delirium happens upon the nursery rhyme man and her puppy. Oh yeah, I like this. He's got a sign that says, I'll just spend it on beer, and beer is crossed out and replaced with dog food. Yep, Barnabas is here. Hello, you're late. 
Barnabas, I thought you were losted. I will never, ever, as long as I live, let you out of my sight again for a single solitary second. It's not even like they have proper ice creams at Disneyland anyway, running off like that after a chocolate-covered banana, I ask you. But I did look for you, all over. Huh, where were you looking? Patagonia? Mars? The Emerald City? Um, places like that. Isn't Patagonia just a place in Argentina? Yeah, I think so. It's like not even not real. If we look it up, it's possible that the history of that place name is that it came from a legend. Okay. So she could have been looking in the real Patagonia or the legendary Patagonia, both of which are wrong. She lost him at Disneyland and he's still in California. So she did lose him in a magical place. <laughs> <laughs> you raise a good point. The nursery rhyme man chimes in that he's a good dog and he talks pretty good for a dog. I must give you a present for finding my doggy. Do you want golden touches and, oh, never dying and things? Uh, nope. Uh, no way. Not me, ma'am. Tain't safe to ask favors of your kind, even if I earned them. Otherwise, I could find myself spitting out flower petals and silver dollars every time I speak. He does say that he would like to see Barnabas every now and then. Yeah, in the he's, future. He's happy with a thank you and occasional visits from the dog. And as Delirium and Barnabas walk off together into this sort of crayon drawing of a beautiful sunny place, apparently into the realm of delirium. I think bad things have happened. I feel them in my socks. You remember my brother, Dream, who you met? Tall, officious, rather stuffy, looks like he doesn't get out enough. Um, yes, him. He's gone. He's not in my mind anymore. I'm sure he can take care of himself. I... I don't think so. At Lux, Lucifer is bored of this place. All that keeps him going now, he says, is the desire to see how it all turns out. The universe, that is. He says he thought of himself as a co-author in the universe, but was quickly reduced to being a character. Now he's bored even of waiting to see if here God was right, no longer interested in saying I told you so at the end of all things. So, they're closing up Lux for the last time and walking off to their next adventure, which I suppose, is that kind of queuing up his solo series? Kind of, although I think he still operates Lux at the beginning of his solo series. I see. Anyway, Mazakin says, where to? He says, anywhere, everywhere, I don't know. But she vows to go with him wherever. If you must. At Zelda's funeral, Hal turns up and he just opens with an apology to save time. So we'll just assume everything you said yesterday was right and that everything I said was wrong. Shall we? Easier that way. Why, Hal, that's the sweetest apology anyone's ever made to me. Yeah. Now, Rose corrects him on how the Spider-Women got AIDS. Right. He kind of snarkily says, well, you don't get it from toilet seats, you know. And she points out that Chantal had a kidney replacement in April of 1989. The donor was HIV positive. It couldn't happen now. It was a fluke. It wasn't caught then. Right. And she says, they didn't have any drug except each other. So Chantal got it from a kidney replacement, a fluke accident, were given no further explanation as to how Zelda got it. I guess they could have been giving each other blood transfusions for fun, but I think we're supposed to conclude that she got it through sex with Chantal. Yeah, although my understanding is that it's very difficult to transmit HIV through woman-on-woman -woman sex. Mm. I sort of wondered about that. I wondered if this was just, just an inaccuracy, because these things were still relatively new and recent. Yeah, don't know. So Rose says it was innocent after all, but Hal says there's no innocent or guilty, just dead. He mentions her quest to find the triple goddess in sitcoms, and then she drops a bombshell. I haven't done anything on the book for ages. Um, 
Hal, I think I'm pregnant. There we go, then. In the midst of death, we are in life. Let's go and say bye-bye to Zelda. After you. So, Rose, who is a relative of Dream and all the other Endless, really, yeah. will be having a child. Yeah. Desire's grandbaby. Endless on her side of the family, of course. I'm presuming it's Jax, the lawyer. Yeah, that's the impression. So, okay, that's, that's, that's the implication. So, we should probably talk for a minute here about Zelda. The fact that she's one of the few gay characters in this story and dies of AIDS, which at the time was a pretty big deal and worth calling attention to. It is true that she's kind of a plot device. Her purpose in this arc is more for Rose's development than her own. Although I think the point is really to contrast the banality of her death with the mythic events that are going on elsewhere. Right. And her mundane death feels much more real to Rose than all this other weird stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's also worth noting that she was only ever a she was only ever a focal character for a few pages in one issue. Right. She's mostly been consigned to being a supporting character ever since she was introduced. Mm -hmm. And I find it highly unlikely to believe that Neil Gaiman knew that he would be bringing her back when he wrote her out the first time. Right, yeah. She arguably gets more exploration here than she did when she was just one of the Spider-Women, one of these eccentric characters that Rose met. Right. It's just a shame that it had to be getting killed off, and I'm going to come back to that in a few pages. I don't really know how much I think all this is worth covering, the four panels of the nurse ruminating on hell. I think we can just suffice to say, back at the nursing home, Alex Burgess has woken up. Right. She wanders the halls of the nursing home. She hears the patients howling in their sleep-like furies, and the moans that assail her from every room are more than mere lunacy, which was kind of surprising to me. I thought this was a nursing home, not Arkham Asylum. <laughs> right. But she hears a, a voice rusty and hoarse with disuse, and it's Alex. He has woken up. I, I was asleep, wasn't I? I had such dreams. There was a cat who became a man, the man my father caught. It's a strange... Oh, but it's gone. Where's Paul? You must be a new nurse. I don't know you. I don't... Paul? Is this another nightmare? Is it? Is it another bad dream? I'm going to go ahead and read her with a Scottish accent because she's one of the matronly type characters, and that's the way I read Mother. Oh, and she says, hush now, dearie, which is pretty Scottish. Hush now, dearie. You've been asleep for a while now, but the nightmares are over. You're wide awake, and that's a blessing. There, nothing's going to hurt you. It was only a dream. I do have to point out something else on this page, though, which is that the nurse has fallen asleep with a newspaper in her hand, and the paper reads, Local solicitor kills himself when gay lover walks out. We oh, knew that, that Jack? Right. We knew that Jack, the solicitor, had not much experience with women from Rose's narration. We knew that she had called him and he had, he had not been alone on the other end of that phone. He had been with someone she should have known about, someone he was in a relationship with. So now we are finding out that the significant other was a man, that when he found out about the infidelity, he walked out, resulting in Jack's suicide. That's unfortunate. There's nothing implausible about the whole story. It's just unfortunate that yet another gay character in the story got killed off. Yeah. Seemingly as a result of it. Right. Of being gay. Lyda comes to in Thessaly's apartment. Yeah, and Thessaly is reading a book here entitled When Real Things Happen to Imaginary People. 
What? Where am I? What's happened to me? The last thing I remember is Daniel. They took Daniel. I must have had some kind of breakdown. Who are you? How do you know me? I'm called Larissa, and you are a pawn who briefly became a knight or a queen, and you've just been taken off the board. You're talking nonsense. Was I drugged or something? I was looking for Daniel. As I understand it, your actions have ensured that you will never see Daniel again. She gives her a cup of tea. I'd take a shower and then start running if I were you. Lots of people are going to want to hurt you or kill you for what you've done. Including me. Oh, Thessaly, you are a fickle one. In the barren world of the dreaming, everything is dead except for millions of ravens. Yes, we see the millions of ravens taking off there. Feast is over, apparently. But within the palace, Daniel sits on the floor playing with the emerald. Yeah, we have a really cool zoom in on this one lit palace window and Daniel playing inside. In his hand, the emerald changes, and his hand changes as well, becoming longer, paler. The emerald turns into an amulet, and he puts it on. He's a young man now, tall and pale, with wild white hair, all white, in skin and clothes, head to toe. Daniel? asks the Corinthian, as he's walking into the throne room. No, not any longer. His speech bubbles are not black. No, they're white, but sort of cloudy, just like Morpheus's. Yeah. I think the font is the same. And we come to the final scene in the Fury's house, or the Mori Raid, whatever. So, it's finished. Yes. Mother says, a few loose ends, but that's only to be expected. Maiden asks Mother if she's satisfied. Mother says no one ever is. The crone comes in with tea and cookies. Mother takes the fortune cookie. And reading the fortune. It's silly rubbish. Flowers gathered in the morning. Afternoon they blossom on. Still are withered by the evening. You can be me when I'm gone. You can be me when I'm gone. Mother crumples the fortune and throws it away. There. For good or bad, it's done. A little more meta dialogue to close out the saga there. Yeah. So there's six more issues to go, but that is officially how it ends. That's the end of Morpheus. Seemingly, possibly by his own hand. Right. He made a series of choices that brought him in conflict with a force strong enough to actually destroy him. Yeah, and ceased to exist as that facet, but not without arranging for another to take his place. This is possibly what he had in mind for Daniel all along. Yeah, it's it's hard to know. Like Odin says, he's kind of implacable, you know? You can't tell. It's hard to know how far back he was planning it, although it kind of seems like maybe... The death of Orpheus was the the last straw. I want to talk about that because the arc that has seemed most changed to me, having read the end of the series as we've been going back through it, uh, is the Season of Mists. As we look at that story, Morpheus at the beginning makes a very sudden decision that his duty is to go to hell. He makes a tour of goodbyes before he leaves with all his friends. He comes back not killed by Lucifer after all, and seems to fall into a black depression, almost as though he didn't expect to. Yeah. In the light of this story, that really strikes me as, like, his first opportunity to go to his doom. You know, I think the thing that really kind of struck me about it is that Morpheus... Morpheus is kind of... He's sort of an embodiment of depression. He's, like, a very archetypical depressed character. Okay. And as... The conversation between Barnabas and Delirium points out, you know, Barnabas says, I'm sure he can take care of himself, but 
Delirium is like, no, he can't. You, you know? Mm-hmm. Not everybody can take care of themselves. Some people are, like, deeply depressed or have have a need for emotional support for other reasons. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's kind of what we learn from Morpheus. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it, because he does sort of surround himself. He's not good with people, and he has, at times, a sort of contempt for ordinary people, although other stories show him reaching out to ordinary people for no particular reason. But he has surrounded himself with characters, with entities that he created to populate his world. Right. Delirium, she says that he can't take care of himself. She was considering going to try to take care of him at the beginning of the story arc, and decided that's not where she needed to be, or that she wasn't going to interfere with this. Right. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe Lucifer it... said that it was too late. Yes. She uh, she went looking for her dog instead. But maybe that was bad advice, you know. The, there's lots of stories that say you shouldn't take advice from Lucifer. <laughs> from the devil, who's surprisingly nice in this issue. <laughs> right. Yeah, but he he operates as a contrast to Morpheus, and he basically points that out himself, that he got tired of his duty, and so he walked away from it. He showed Morpheus that that option was available, but that's not one that Morpheus could ever take. Right. It's uh, It, it works for grand myth-making. I'm not sure that except that suicide is what people want to do is good advice for real life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I do have to say, though, there's a great sense of inevitability here. Mm-hmm. In the early issues of this story arc, we really got the impression of like people putting events into motion. Yeah. Loki and Puck, particularly, put events into motion. And Morpheus did put a lot of the events into motion that led to his own demise. But really, like, it's just like a kind of slow, tragic unfolding. By the end, it's it's just a slow unfolding of what we already knew was going to happen. Yeah, that's right. And, And I sort of wondered about that going into it, because I wondered if you would be disappointed that... The suspense in the storyline seemed to be, how will he get out of it? And then at the end, he just doesn't. Yeah, no, I think I sort of expected that. Both because the structure of this story kind of leads you to that conclusion before Mm -hmm. it actually happens. And because when people talk about Sandman, they kind of hinted that that's that's the way it's going to be. Okay. So you didn't have it actively spoiled for you? You just had the the sense that it's the story of this character and it ends with his death? Right. Right. Yeah. I find the scene, the last scene between Morpheus and Death really affecting. It's not surprising in the context of the Death character that we've met, in the context of issue number eight, where she's just kind of a a friendly colloquial figure that is able to that is able to take people without being menacing about it. Yeah. That in this final scene, it's not really about the kindly ones or the war and the dreaming. It's just this conversation between these two people in which he is very tired and she seems to offer him some form of comfort. Even though she's also kind of pissed at him for putting all this in motion. Right. She's um the one that knows him best, maybe the only one who can see how how far-reaching his plans are. Yeah, I like how she sees right through it. Mm-hmm. Maybe more than he does. Yeah, she's always had a way of cutting through his bullshit. We're given a certain amount of ambiguity as to why he did what he did. Whether it was atoning for Orpheus' death or what he did to Orpheus originally. Whether he came to see his world as imprisoning because of his imprisonment. Or whether it was just that his time in the crystal cell taught him what an asshole he had been. (laughs) 
right. to Orpheus and no- uh, uh, not Noala, Nada particularly, who had also been imprisoned for eons because of his interference. Yeah. Yeah, she served a considerably longer term than he did. Yeah. Yeah, I think that maybe that ambiguity kind of... It mirrors the sort of inexplicable nature of depression. Okay. Like, to people who are outside it, you know, Mm -hmm. looking at people who suffer from depression, it's like, you know, there's, there's seemingly no reason behind it. Okay. You know, they struggle to understand why the why the person feels this way when, you know, objectively, things in their life seem fine. Okay, yeah, so in the same sense, we can't fully understand why Morpheus felt what he did and did what he did. Right. We get the strong impression that he didn't want to be Dream anymore, or he didn't want to be himself anymore. In any event, he wasn't willing to walk away, so he had to cease to exist. Right. But there's also a kind of rebirth in the sense of Daniel. Right. The endless are endless after all, and dream does not end. The concept of dream does not end. Right. It seems like Daniel becomes the new dream. He can't change, so he replaces himself with someone else. Yeah, and the poem that he leaves behind kind of hints at rebirth as well. You can be me when I'm gone. Right. So, yeah, interesting stuff. We should probably talk a little bit about the art before we depart from Mark Hempel. You want to talk about the art again? I don't think my, there's anything to add to the art? I've given my opinion of Mark Hempel's art okay. many times. <laughs> you know? Which was? I don't like it. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I didn't know that. Really? I, I mean, I don't know. I've We've covered it probably four times now, or this would be the fourth time. I try to, like, make excuses for it that it's in keeping with the tone of this story. Mm. But yeah, his, like, very caricatured style is not really my thing. I prefer my fantasy fantastic. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. I, at least, was impressed by the layouts of the actual moments of Morpheus' death. Yeah, yes, there's definitely some pages that are very dramatic and some panels that are very effective. I'll give you that. We should probably talk about how you feel about this story and it's being 13 issues long now that you've read the whole thing. <laughs> you know, I don't know what I would cut. Okay. It's it's long, but that's because it's very ambitious. Yeah. You know, it, it weaves together every character in the Sandman universe and it kind of gives every character and every moment its due. Yeah, it's a very personal story, but also a very epic one. And it is also saying goodbye to this series and this universe. Yeah. So each character gets their their bit of closure. Right. There's arguably a parallel between Rose saying the weird shit doesn't matter, life is what matters, and the fact that we are, after all, just reading a story. Our lives also go on. Right. Sort of how to react to real life versus how to react to stories is kind of a favorite topic of Gaiman's. Look back at Sandman number six, 24 hours. Or better yet, don't. <laughs> <laughs> right. Fine print. Do not attempt. <laughs> yeah, but we like to think that stories help to make sense of things and that Rose's experience has taught her something. Yeah. And I think that there's, you know, there's a story being told here, but there's also kind of a... The story is, as usual, a metaphor for storytelling. Right. And in this case, 
that metaphor seems to kind of be like what is the real stuff that's left behind like when the story is done right you know rose like you said deals with sort of magic weird shit yeah and she deals with a death that's sort of banal and very real Mm -hmm. we also have the idea of the dreaming Mm -hmm. as like this kind of this sort of barren place when stripped of its characters right yeah you know maybe in the end like morpheus and daniel are like real people okay but, but most of the folks they surrounded themselves with in the dreaming are just facets yeah that's an interesting way of looking at it although you could also look at it as morpheus is all has always been kind of a selfish prick and he allows a bunch of people around him to be destroyed because he's in his own shit. And because it's necessary for his um, plan. For his... his plan to come to its conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard not to think he gave Noella the boon at the beginning of the story arc so that he could be pulled out of the dreaming so that the destruction that the kindly ones wrought would be permanent. Right. Yeah. Well, and there's there's some loose threads here that we still have to clean up we'll have to see what happens in the wake there's rose's kid Mm -hmm. there's whatever's going on with the angels in hell there's desire's role in all this because this is sort of her plan too yeah or its plan too so yeah you'll have to join us for that in our next sandman episode yeah we have had zelda's funeral in our next sandman episode we cover morpheus's funeral in the wake But join us next week as John Constantine hits 40. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, please don't be afraid to ask for help. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or go to suicidepreventionlifeline.org. You're not alone. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show and I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website at vertigize.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. You can reach me on Twitter, at Vertigize. And you can reach me at BlankCastSean. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Vertigize. But hey, please send us an email at vertigize at gmail.com. If you have any questions or comments you want read aloud on the show, or if you just want to chat about comics. Speaking of reading aloud, we would love to read some positive reviews. So please, if you're enjoying the show, leave a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. We should probably talk a little bit about the art before we depart from Mark Hempel. Saying that so that's in. I was like, I got the look on my face. I was like, son of a bitch, you're going to make me talk about it again? (laughs) (laughs) Remember Sammy Jenkins? I'm going to keep making you talk about it until you like it.